Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Pastor AJ, and we are in the middle of a series titled Kingdom Codes. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and today we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. So flip open your Bibles. If you got them, you're going to want to follow along to this conversation. And with that, let's go deeper. Joining us for the third installment of this Kingdom Code series, talking about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20, we got none other than Pastor Larry. Pastor Larry, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, I love being here. Yeah, Thank we, you, AJ. We get the occasional episode every once in a while. Oh, man. I always look forward to I it. I tell you, man, if you go back into the archives of the podcast, <laughs> we got some good ones. We so. do. I <laughs> think we might have the best ones, actually. Oh, man. We might, we <laughs> might have them. We've talked about some things in there. But uh, today we get to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, which is another yeah. amazing thing. Mm. It's been three weeks in this series so far. And uh, mm. if you're a listener, you know that I usually ask context questions to start off with. Mm. And uh, the thing is, we've introduced this series already. We've, we've heard a little bit about Matthew from Pastor Danny. And now as we're continuing to go, I think I want to use this space to recap where we've gone. So we've seen in Matthew 5, Jesus paint this picture of the blessed life, which is completely upside down. It's not, yeah. nothing you would expect. Yeah. And then he transitions into this conversation we had last week about we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. And now we get into our passages this week about the law and the prophets. And what I'm noticing, Larry, is that in this grand teaching of Jesus, I'm still waiting for him to like say what we should do and like live a particular, you know, the application points right. that always come out. But right. He hasn't yet, and maybe today we'll get to it. I don't know. If you read along, you, you'll probably figure out. But I just wanted to throw the question to you. How does this sequence of events, this, this blessed life at the beginning, the salt and light uh, analogy after that, how does this progression help us better understand where we're talking about the law and the prophets today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a great question. The context is so important. I, I, what I see, and I was going, I was doing the same thing, you know, listening to Pastor Danny the last couple of weeks and thinking about the Beatitudes and the salt light. It seems to me that what Jesus is doing here is he's he's first in this beautiful sermon, this amazing sermon. He's he's addressing his the inner circle, really, the, his disciples, and he's reminding them of this upside down kingdom life. And of course, that applies to everybody. But I think he's focusing really on those who really belong to him, and then who we are uh, as salt and light. And then it's like a little bit of a pause. I kind of feel like today is sort of the 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 uh, the last stop before he actually enters the content of mm. the sermon, which is really a more broad based, and and what he's going to do there is he's going to establish this incredible connection between the law and the prophets and who he is, mm. because he's about to drop some really controversial things into the hearers' minds, and in doing so, he has to establish the fact that. This is actually not as controversial as it's going to sound to them. And so to me, it, it feels to, like the last stop in the introduction to the masses of people. 
Um, and so, yeah, so the context of the religious day, I know we're probably going to get into that a little bit with the demographics. Mm-hmm. I think it's really just an important part of the sermon that, to be honest with you, the average reader, and I don't know if we're going to read it, maybe for the listeners. Yeah, we'll go verse by verse. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, but I think the, the average reader might gloss over this section. Hmm. And in fact, as you probably know, the commentaries, most of the commentaries say this is the hardest section <laughs> in the Sermon on the Mount and maybe oh, the New Testament. Because of what Jesus says here, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So, yeah, looking forward to, you know, I thought, wow, that's great that I get to do this because uh, (laughs) nobody else wanted to. We're going to have a good pause here (laughs) and make sure we're on the same page. And so, yeah, we'll just read verse by verse um, as we go along. Starting in verse 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And as at the beginning of the episode, I said we're going to be talking about the law and the prophets just to get on the same page. What does he mean by law and yeah, prophets? that's a great question, and we kind of unpack this in the sermon, but whenever you see that phrase in the book of Matthew and other New Testament writers, it encompasses the Old Testament scriptures as that we've, as the people of Jesus' day would have known. Right. And so there would have been uh, no question in their minds that he was talking about the whole corpus of scripture, mm-hmm. not just a certain prophet or a certain law, like the specific Mosaic law of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Uh, It was all of that Mm. that he was saying he did not come to abolish. Yeah, so he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And even in this verse, it almost seems like it implies that there's like a prior relationship that the audience has with the law and the prophets, with what we would call the Old Testament, what they just called their their Hebrew scriptures at the point. And so to, to really set the scene here, what is that prior relationship and, and how can we really get into the shoes of, of what Jesus is saying here mm. based on what we know about what you said, the, the demographic, the religious demographic of the day, the yeah. people that were involved there, the, what was the prior relationship that they had yeah. with the law and the prophets that right. they could have foreseen Jesus completely upsetting right here in this moment. Right. Well, yeah. And that's the million dollar question. In fact, (laughs) it gets a little more complex in verse 18, if I could jump into that, because Jesus says there, he says, I tell you the truth, uh, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so it gets even a little more dramatic because he's saying whatever that corpus of scripture is, there's it is trustworthy and and uh absolutely immutable down to the very smallest stroke of the pen um and so as you know some people have kind of looked at what jesus is saying here is that he's he's kind of going after he's targeting the idea of well maybe he's he's surely he's abolished you know like the ceremonial law or the civil law but he's Mm -hmm. not really touching the moral law and so that's but that the text doesn't read that way. Mm. It reads more stringently that he's he's not abolishing anything and he's only fulfilling everything. So your question, the people of Jesus' day, um, the demographics, okay, there would have been the common people, which would have been probably 90% uh, of the people living in and around uh, Jerusalem or in the northern or southern area where Jesus is doing his preaching here at this time. Um, uh, there were Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were Zealots, there were Herodians, there were the Essenes, 
there were the scribes. <laughs> and this is a it's big a group bunch. of a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. And, and those were all really smaller subsets. And what they were, and I, I know most of us kind of have a general idea, and we can just kind of make some generalizations here. The Pharisees, known uh, for history, nobody really knows the, the exact origin of the Pharisees, except probably around the time of the Maccabean Revolt, mm-hmm. um, when there was this hard stop against all the Hellenism of of Jewish society um, and the Seleucid rulers imposing, you know, all this pagan worship upon the people of Israel. And this one guy, John Hyrcanus, and his his family kind of rose up and fought against all this. Mm-hmm. It was believed that the Pharisees were kind of, the, they were the Hasidian uh, family, which means the pious, the ones that were set apart. Mm. And so they really start off with kind of this zealousness for the law of God. And and so if you were back then, you know, this would have been a hundred years before Jesus even came on the scene, there would have been a high rank of, of uh, respect for the Pharisee because the Pharisee was really committed to being completely uh, adherent to the law. Mm. Um, but by the time Jesus comes on the scene, and by the time this uh, this strong religious fervor had morphed into more of a political ideology, mm. and oh my goodness, as I'm thinking about this in terms of our day right. today, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of a you little can see the crossover. There. There's a little crossover here, mm. but where where religious people became politically entrenched, then the Pharisees became sort of noted for their external righteousness, mm. this outward appearance that was not always, you know, inwardly uh, substantiated. And so this was a big problem in Jesus' day. And I think the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking to this mass of people, among which there would have been Pharisees and there would have been a high regard for the Pharisees because of this meticulous you know, attention to the law, but there was also uh, an almost recognition of the fact that these were externals. They were not really like of the heart. And so Jesus, as typically Jesus would do, he goes after the real heart of the matter. And he's going to, you know, like from this point on in the sermon, he's going to say, you know, you've heard it said, and he quotes the law or he quotes someone's interpretation of the law. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but I say unto you, mm-hmm. which is a flip from uh, what anyone would have thought at the time. And it sounds, like I said, controversial, maybe even wrong, but Jesus wants them to be aware that um, this is this is the point. Okay, now I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <laughs> So you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, who are more of a political group. They were, uh, they believed in only the law. The Jewish people, the Pharisees, they believed in the law of Moses, but they also believed in the writings, the oral traditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of weight on the Targum and the, you know, the, uh, the different um, uh, writings from the rabbis and interpretations. As you know, mm-hmm. you know, they took the 613 laws of the Old Testament Picked and then them apart. they. And they blew them up even more. So there's like hundreds of laws on the 613 laws. Mm -hmm. And by the time, you know, the average person sees what it means to keep the law, it's an impossibility. It's Mm. impossibility. But the Sadducees, they were purists. They believed in only the law, but they also didn't believe in things like, you know, uh, resurrection. They didn't believe in uh, spiritual afterlife. They didn't believe in uh, judgment, heaven or hell. They didn't believe in, you know, spiritual warfare. And so they kind of teetered more toward like the the elite aristocracy side. So Mm -hmm. they were even a lesser group of people in Jesus' day. 
But nevertheless, they were sort of the, you know, they were the ones that were in the know. Then you've got the Essenes. They were like a, a commune of people that were into uh, ritual rituals and, and baptisms and things, pure, pure, pure about following the Lord. But there's no, we don't really have a lot mentioned. This comes more from Jewish history, right, right. the Essene community. But we know that in the Essene community, there had to have been probably the scribes. They must have associated with the Essenes because the biggest corpus of scriptures found, copies found of the Essene community happened in that area known as En Gedi, which is where an Essene community thrived uh, during before and during the time of Jesus. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so there's uh, there's an incredible amount of uh, interesting thoughts about you know the, the Essenes, and they were probably among the people too. They would wear white robes, showing the purity of who they were. And then you've got, you know, the Herodians, which were sort of the politically minded branch. You got the Zealots who wanted to restore the kingdom of David to the throne. You know, no, the, the Roman leaders were to be cast out because we're a, a society of, under the one king of David. And so all these... <laughs> all the tensions, right? Tensions and factions. <laughs> and that's what I love about Jesus here is he comes in and he makes something so profoundly simple mm. that it... it it's going to torque people, but it's going to give people a clear picture of what, what it means to enter the kingdom of God. Mm. And so those first two verses is where, you know, like in the sermon, we're talking about our view of Scripture's role in making us righteous. It's huge, because we either look at Scripture as, um, and I said this in the sermon, we either look at Scripture as just a bunch of rules that keep us on track with God mm-hmm. and with each other, mm-hmm. or we see it as something else. And what Jesus is showing us that it's actually something else, and that something else is Him. Mm. And that's why He says, "I didn't come to abolish; I came actually to fulfill." So I don't think He's talking about, you know, like ceremonial law versus civic law versus. I think He's talking about, I am the fulfillment of every part of the law, even if parts of the law are no longer in you know, in action, and we'll get into this later in the podcast, I think, mm-hmm. you know, oh, yeah. you have some questions about that, but, <laughs> but I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's, anyway, I'm probably rambling at this point, I should be quiet, I'm sermonizing you're, you're now. You're never rambling, so. <laughs> no, I do, <laughs> trust me, ask my wife, I ramble a lot. No, I think, I think the thing that stands out to me is the prior relationship, right? It seems like these, these people are coming in with this loaded worldview about what the scriptures are in the same way like our society yeah, has like we do very similar you know relationship with what this book on our desk is right here yep. and um i'm just fascinated by it. like it almost seems like jesus in these two verses is like making sure that nobody misrepresents what he's trying to do mm. and so it says going back to 17 don't think that i've come to abolish the law I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then it goes, like you said in verse 18, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until Mm. everything is accomplished. And so it it seems like Jesus is is going out of his way to say like, hey, I'm not abolishing this, I'm fulfilling it. This law will not disappear. And, And as Christians, as followers of Jesus, it might be helpful to talk a little bit more about why it's super important to see Jesus as sort of the completion, the fulfillment in this word, or in his own words, the fulfillment of them, um, the the continuation, 
whatever you want to say in that that phrase. Mm-hmm. Why is it important for Christians to see Jesus as those things in relationship to the law, the, the fulfillment of the law? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, because he, if he's the one that fulfills it, then it's all about him. Mm. And this is where I think we have the biggest problem is that we tend to disassociate the law or scriptures a lot of times from the person and work of Jesus. And so I think the, the challenge is always to keep our eyes and focus on Jesus, because if he's the fulfillment of the law, then even in the questions that we have about, gee, that, that doesn't seem to make sense now, or gee, we're not practicing that anymore. We're not doing purity rites anymore. Right. We're not bringing sacrifice to the temple. I mean, those mm-hmm. that's kind of a layup. But we, there, there are things that we're not doing that the law once commanded us. Well, why? Because Jesus fulfills all of that. Mm-hmm. If we have Jesus, he's actually the fulfiller of everything. So... Um, I guess that's the beauty of our faith in him in that we we are, we are not, you know, I think of other like even religious systems, like it's sometimes wondered like, well, Jesus kind of fits into the mold of all the other religious leaders or prophets of the day, but actually not, not even to the remotest degree, hmm. because he he is the only one who claims absolute fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Hmm. You know, so whenever I hear people try to make it sound palpable that, you know, Jesus is kind of in the same rank as a Muhammad or a, mm-hmm. a Confucius or some other world religious leader, I just say, wow, you know, well, first we're talking apples and oranges because none of those share the same foundation of scriptural, you know, our scriptures. And I, I suppose if we were talking about just a debate and argument, we could say, well, you know, it's a circular argument to say, well, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures and therefore he's, you know, when these other religious systems don't have the same foundation piece. But when you line them alongside of Jesus and you say that they're the same, you say there's no way they're the same. Mm. There's no way. So anyway, it's uh, it, it just, to me, elevates and exalts um, the beauty and the power of the work of God in making all of this around his son, the Lord Jesus, as the redeemer, the one who comes, the one who rescues, the one who redeems, the one who is everything. And I think of people who sort of dabble in the scriptures and, and, and let's face it, I mean, this, if Jesus is saying nothing else in 17 and 18, he's saying he has the utmost view of what scripture is. And so for us to dabble in scriptures and like, I talk to people all the time and like, well, you know, well, what, you know, how is, how, how, is, what do you do for Bible reading or whatever? And a lot of times professing believers have like a look of like deer in the headlights. They're like, (laughs) I don't read the Bible. Mm. Do we have to read the Bible? Mm. And there's even an excuse sometimes that, well, if I have Jesus, I don't need the Bible. Mm. But wow, that's like a a real reversal of what Jesus... Jesus is not saying, I came to fulfill it, so if you have me, you don't don't need all this other stuff. He's saying, in it, in and through all that you read, you're going to see me. Mm. And it's going to just be a diverse application in so many ways. And I can't Mm. wait to talk about that a little bit more here in a minute. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the question that I want to bring out from verse 18, because one of the things I found Mm. was that there's really two emphasis that are possible in this Uh phrase. And it comes from the until statement. Until statement, yeah. So I'll I'll read the verse again, Mm -hmm. and I'll I'll highlight those until statements Mm -hmm. and add some emphasis on it (laughs) so that you can hear the, the, the challenges. So... Here's the first reading. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor or not the least stroke of a pen will be, by any means disappear from the law 
until everything is accomplished, meaning until Jesus accomplishes what he's going to do on the cross, and then it's okay for the law to disappear. Mm-hmm. That's one reading of it. <laughs> okay. A second reading says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, meaning end times, until heaven and earth are completely gone, until we see the new heavens, new earth, Revelation 21, mm-hmm. not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. And so the interpretation could go two ways. One mm-hmm. way, if, if it's until everything has been accomplished by Jesus, mm-hmm. then you can make an argument, hey, we are under grace and we don't, like you said, we don't need the law anymore. We're, we're done with that. Mm-hmm. And then the other argument says, like, wait, there's something important about the law mm-hmm. that's not going to disappear until we see the end times coming up. Yeah. So the big question underneath <laughs> all of these interpretations until these two until statements mm. is what role does the law have in a Christian's life? Mm. What, what should we take away from, from Jesus' saying that something is going to happen that's different to the law here? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's the role of the law in the Christian life? Well, I, I think there there clearly is a, an aspect of the law which does guide us into you know um, a moral life and into the truth of of the way life is meant to be lived. But I think in and around and in front of even that is this reality of Jesus being the one who manifests all of what the law was pointing toward. Um, and so, you know, your question is a good one, and I'm not even sure I can even answer it <laughs> sufficiently because, to be honest, all the commentaries I read on that <laughs> text, yeah. I left kind of thinking, I don't think anybody knows exactly <laughs> what's going on here. But, but for example, and maybe you saw this too, we could go over to like Matthew 11, um, sure. where, where Jesus says something really interesting about the law and the prophets. He says... Uh, he says, from the days, this is verse thir- uh, 12 of Matthew 11, he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Mm. So, and you see that in Luke 16, 16 also, where Jesus says it a little differently, and there's there's some interesting commentary about that too but it does appear that there's certainly what jesus is saying here is that there was a role of the law and the prophets that was in operation until the time of john or until Mm -hmm. and some commentators are thinking that what this means is the time of john's death Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then after which you know, it's the life of Jesus, mm-hmm. and then the crucifixion, his death on the cross, and form, and and then the uh, resurrection. That until John, the law and the prophets had a specific role, but then since John, Jesus, he takes all of that. It's kind of wrapped into everything that he does. And this is where, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm not like taking us off tangent here, but you know, in Matthew 24, 34, Mark 13, 30, Luke 21, 32, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, mm-hmm. but my words will never pass away. Mm. So it's almost as if he's saying, I don't think almost as if, he's saying, my words are going to last forever. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
So in that sense, the law never stops. Right. Because he's identifying himself as the completion of it. Right? He's the completion, yeah. yeah. Mm. That's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really crazy when you think about it. Um, so yeah, maybe I'm getting a little off track here. But so, so your question about, well, what is the law to us then? Um, first and foremost, we have to see it as that which points us to Jesus. And we're going to see that in the sermon a couple of different ways. One of the ways is that we just stop being so committed to rule keeping. Mm -hmm. Because here's what religious people do. They keep rules mm -hmm. because they think that's what makes us righteous. But what Jesus is saying in Sermon on the Mount, he's going, actually, it's not. Because you can keep the rule. In fact, look at all these rules that you guys are keeping. And yet, there's a deeper rule that you're avoiding or that you're actually you know, neglecting. And the, 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 the deeper one is the spirit behind that law. And that's why when you connect with Jesus, everything opens up mm -hmm. because you stop becoming a rule keeper and you start becoming more passionate about obedience to Jesus. And there's mm -hmm. a big difference because right. obedience to Jesus means not the actual act, but what's in the heart mm -hmm. behind the act. Right. Right. So, you, yeah. can, you know, you can keep... You can avoid. Well, we'll t you know we'll talk about it in the sermon for the next several weeks, everybody. Sure. Yeah. You know you can Come on back. you can not have sexual relations outside of your marriage. You can keep that rule, but you can be guilty of adultery mm. because you can lust after a woman. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness! You know every every single one of those um, contrasts that Jesus gives in the text just nails me down to say I am a sinner. I I am a a lawbreaker. But Jesus is the law keeper. He's the one that actually fulfills the law. So as long as I'm good with Jesus, then actually I escape the judgment that that law would bring upon me, condemnation. Mm -hmm. you know? so, so that's why the law is still important, but it's only, I don't want to say it's only important as. I'm saying it's important, but it's Jesus that fulfills it because mm -hmm. the law by itself is is um is dead i mean right. it can't save yeah it's almost as if like the image i'm getting right now from the the painting of the demographic of all these religious people that have this various relationship with the law and then this guy coming up and saying mm. yeah all this was about me mm. <laughs> yeah you know how like that would have rattled some feathers but you know, thinking about what that means is like, well, it feels like the law is governing like the borders of what's like right and wrong. And then right. you get the, the picture of a, a right life. Right. It's so beautiful right. where Jesus is like putting right. himself in that situation. I don't know. Yeah. Oh. I, I'm starting to see why people skip this section because <laughs> <laughs> it brings up so many interesting discussions it about does. the law and the placement of it. And I know, yeah. Mm. To, to completely ignore it and say, like, we have Jesus now, like, I feel like you're missing so many learning opportunities. Absolutely. And, like, God opening up his heart to what he would like in life, you know? What, right. what, his, what does the law look like being right. lived out in perfection? Jesus. Look at Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. That's and was he stodgy and was he, like, you know, a rule keeper? Well, he was, he kept the law but he was not stodgy. And so the, the right. way the law looks in the life of Jesus is 
flourishing, whole, shalom, right. blessing, uh, conviction of what's right and wrong, you know? I mean, one of the hard things about being a believer, uh, and we don't hear about this very much, is that you got to take seriously sin, hmm. you know? I mean, you, got, you have to take that seriously. Yeah. We, and we don't. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to... Because we've got Jesus. Mm-hmm. He, he fulfilled the law. Praise God. Well, if that's our attitude, we're kind of missing the point. Yeah. And I feel like that's where he carries off into verse 19 here. Yeah. He says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one mm-hmm. of the least of these commands and mm-hmm. teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great mm-hmm. in the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm struck by in these words is both parties that he addresses are still in the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. So presumably yeah. they're talking to people yeah. or Jesus is talking to people that are yeah. believers that yeah. are in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. And yet one is setting aside some of these commands and you know whatever Jesus is about to teach, they're setting it aside and they're becoming least in the kingdom, whereas somebody else is practicing them and teaching them and, and you know living by them, mm-hmm. one might say, yeah. building their house on the rock. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> And it says that great will you be in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And one of the things I, I think that was interesting in your message was this conversation about why are Christians a little bit hesitant to start talking about reward in heaven mm-hmm. or being great in heaven, mm-hmm. um, why is there like a like a almost a shrinking back yeah. of wanting to become great in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah, I think it's maybe our understanding of what Jesus may have meant by great versus least. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think we have a tend- tendency to look at great as sort of like better than others and more deserving of you know of whatever. And, and there could be an element to that, but it's it, just in the same language, Jesus, in the Matthew 11 passage that we were just in a minute ago, Jesus mm-hmm. said, you know, um, among those born of women, there was not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Mm. Wow, what does that mean? Hmm. You know, well, Jesus, and this is so beautiful, Jesus is saying John only took, could go so far. And so even a person, you know, as great as John was in terms of the scope and the grandeur of God's unveiling of his redemptive plan, the person that's on the other side of John actually is in a greater place. Why? Because he's embraced the one whom John was pointing to. Mm-hmm. And so so in that sense, the greater doesn't mean like, I mean, Jesus wasn't saying, you know, I mean, Jesus said there'd be no one like John the Baptist in the history of the world. But the one on the other side of John the Baptist actually is greater than John. Why? Mm. Because he's embraced the one John was pointing to. Mm. So, so greater, I think, we, we have a little problem with understanding those superlatives, greater, right. lesser. But, but I think the other side of it, too, is it, it maybe a little bit of like it feels self-serving. It feels like, you know, hey, we shouldn't be about rewards and mm-hmm. badges and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> Right. I, I had to say that. You know, we, we, we're not even going to go there. We, yeah. you know, we we we're not wa- wanting to be around you know things that look like we're puffing ourselves up. Right. But I think we have to just remember that there's something to be said. If you look at all the parables of the kingdom, not all, but some of the parables of the kingdom, Jesus simply or seems to be showing that, um, you know, that the good work done for the master, 
will yield a more productive and mm-hmm. uh, influential place in the role of the kingdom. And if this is a kingdom that we're coming into, and certainly we have one king, there's not many kings, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, he's Jesus. But if this kingdom that we're coming into is ruled by our great and awesome king, then we're going to be somehow a part of that administration of, of the kingdom. And when I say we, I mean, some have said, well, it's the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, you know, you can go through the book of Revelation, which we're going to. Oh, man. And AJ, man, wait till we get there, babe. I can't wait to Uh-oh. be a part of that. But anyway, uh, there's, there's this uh, sense of which there's going to be more. And I think we've dumbed it down. We've kind of looked at mm-hmm. it like, hey, and, and let's be honest, like, I want to get into heaven. Yes, that's that's like the greatest thing in the world, right? And people right. say, if I'm in heaven, it doesn't matter what, I could be the lowest person there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But thankfully, we're not getting into heaven because of works that we're doing. Right. But the way we live our lives here, and this is all through the scripture, New Testament, the way we live our lives here does have a, a reflection and a and a correlation to what we'll be doing on the other side. Mm-hmm. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You know, you were faithful in little. I will put you faithful. I will put you in charge of much. Mm. You know, so like, thank the Lord for those opportunities. And I honestly, AJ, I don't know what that's actually going to look like or how mm. it's going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, like, are we going to be looking over, you know, d- during the kingdom reign? If there's a kingdom reign on earth, <laughs> if we take the view of revelation that God <laughs> is setting up a kingdom, an right. earthly kingdom, you know, are we going to be reigning while the earth is functioning? I don't know. You can. You, you're the heavy oh, hitter on these things. You could tell me. Let's just say Revelation is going to be a fun series. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of questions. I feel like. But um, yeah, Jesus closes out here. I got two more questions for okay. you because he transitions from talking to people that are presumably in the kingdom of heaven to people that aren't in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. At the end of verse 20, it says, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven, yeah. which assumes that they're not already there. But before I read the verse, I've been lamenting with Pastor Danny that it's been very hard to come up with skeptic questions in the Sermon on the Mount, mm. probably because so many skeptics resonate deeply with these teachings, like they're, mm. they're really profound teachings. And so mm-hmm. I've been having to work extra hard to come up with a skeptic question. But <laughs> Pastor Larry, I found a skeptic question okay. for you guys. All right. Coming from the perspective of somebody not in the kingdom of heaven, not a Christian, it seems like as I'm reading this passage, Jesus is putting himself in a very profound spot. He's saying that, yeah, all those thousands of years of Israelite history, um, that was pointing to me. Mm-hmm. And it's all about me. Like, I am the completion of the law. Right. And, you know, just looking around at, you know, world religions, I know there are religions that say, okay, I already disagree with you, Jesus. There's more than one God, right? There's more than one way to God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to agree with you. Uh, thinking about the monotheistic religions, so like the Jewish religion would say, well, Jesus was probably just another uh, Roman, you know, defactor or whatever, um, protester, mm-hmm. and he got crucified for it. Mm-hmm. He was a great prophet, but like really it's about the, the law and the prophets still. Like mm-hmm. nothing really was completed. Uh, we're still looking for that completion. I think of... Mm-hmm. Uh, 
monotheistic religions that look on the other side of Jesus and saying, well, Jesus was like a great prophet in his time, but there are other prophets, mm -hmm. uh, say Muhammad or Joseph Smith or all these you know, different revelations. Like, hey, maybe people are out there claiming that mm -hmm. they have a revelation from Jesus. But regardless, the point is saying that Jesus was just a mere, merely another prophet, didn't really complete anything. There was still needed more completion. Yeah. So I guess the question, coming from a skeptical angle, with all these claims about Jesus not being the completion of the law, how are we so sure mm. that Jesus was the one who mm. completed the law and mm. the prophets? Wow. Great. Isn't it time for a commercial break or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, uh, I honestly, as I think about it, the only thing I would say to someone of that kind of background or a concern or bringing the question up, I would say, the th and it's very simple, the thing that sets Jesus apart from all these others is the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. Right. And of course, we take that by faith, but not only faith, there's obviously reasonable evidence that Jesus, in fact, did rise from the grave. Not only... I'm. I'm Certainly, we have the subjective evidence that he lives in our lives, and we we I talked to him this morning. I'm sure you did too, and all through the day today, he's been on my heart and thoughts. Um, but in the scriptures, we read and find that Jesus, you know, was on the third day raised. Um, and I think if 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 that's not the case, the skeptic has a lot to really come after Christianity with. Yeah. But if it is the case, then the skeptics arguments fall like a deck of cards because mm. none of the other prophets that we hear about either claimed or were purported to have risen from the grave. Mm. So to be champion over death, which if in fact the death was a, a payment, a price, a ransom, which we know from scripture it was, then what did it pay for? It paid for us to have entrance into this life. And that's why what's curious to me, and not to like necessarily take away from this question, but I'm going to just say it, mm -hmm. you know, when Jesus says, because unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, uh, you cannot, you cannot enter. I mean, that, mm -hmm. you have to look at that exclusive claim or exclusionary yeah. claim and say, oh no, yeah, you know, that, that rends me. Can I read that verse real quick? Yeah. Now that, now that we got into it. Yeah. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. And so anyone listening to that, including you and me, who read the scriptures, read the Sermon on the Mount, we say, do any of us live up to this? And think about the most righteous person you know on the planet. If you're a Catholic background, you might think of a pope, cardinal, bishop. If you're in a church like ours, you might think of a pastor. You know, I get people sometimes telling me, you know, oh, Pastor Larry, you know, you're just such a this or that, you know, and they're, they're extolling my characters and things. And I just think, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody on the planet can meet this expectation. That's what the Sermon on the Mount reminds us, that we are bankrupt right. without him. And so then we shift from the the work is up to me to the work is up to him. And that's why the righteousness Jesus is talking about there is is not the right... He says the righteousness that you have to surpass is the external formulaic adherence to the law. And you have to enter into the spirit of the law, 
which all of all of which is encompassed by the way I lived and the payment I right. paid on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so that's the entrance in acknowledgement that he's the one that did it. It's I lay my work down and I take his work. Mm-hmm. And I wonder for the final question, I wonder how many friends, family mm-hmm. members, uh, coworkers, acquaintances, whatever it is out there mm-hmm. are living a life mm-hmm. trying to surpass yeah. the righteousness that of the Pharisees yeah, that are living a life. And that's their understanding is like, Hey, if I'm a good enough person, I can get in yep. and I can get these rewards too. And, um, my, my final question for you is sort of a pastoral one, uh, from your experience. Mm. What's the best way to have conversations with people mm. that are climbing the ladder? They're, they're working really hard to mm. be righteous enough to earn this. And yet mm. we as Christians, can see right through that. Yeah. What 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 would be like a good conversation starter? What are some helpful tips to yeah. you know walk with them as you know they either keep climbing or their eyes are slightly open to like oh no like yeah that's wrong. great. I, I think the first thing we have to do is like put the spotlight on our own selves and admit the fact that we do that too. You know, like we right. we try to justify ourselves by our actions and we you know we I. I'll just say I I can slip into this justification by my works theme a lot in my life mm-hmm. and it's wrong but thankfully the spirit of God always arrests that comes back some way he's going to come back around and say look you know you might think you've got it together but you don't you know you don't and you you need to depend on me so when I'm talking to someone who I feel like is really striving whether they're a non-believer or a believer in Jesus but still trying to like gain um acceptance from God by their works, which is a lot of us are doing, mm-hmm. especially if you have a background where that was taught to you. Mm-hmm. You might have a very conservative background. I'm not talking, you could be Catholic background. This is very common in Catholicism. And I'm just saying this in love that there's a lot of sense of like our works that, you know, um, are a way in. Um, mm-hmm. But, but Protestants have the same problem because this is our human default to think that we can justify ourselves. Mm. So I, when I'm in a conversation with someone that I feel like that's where they're going or that that's where they're holding on to, or I just sense that this is what's going on in their life, I just say, I just remind them like, hey, you know what? I think you're working too hard. Mm. Like, don't, aren't you tired? Mm. Are you tired? How does this work for you? Like, do you... <laughs> because I have a feeling that most people are pretty darn tired and they're not willing to admit it. And I love what Jesus said in Matthew 11. We're in 11 a lot here, but 11, 28 to 30, where he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give rest. Who is he talking about there? He's not talking about people who didn't get a good night's sleep. He's talking about their people that are trying to live up to the law. It was the religious leaders. It was the people, the Jewish people of the day that learned it from the Pharisees, learned it from their synagogue leaders, learned it from the rabbis. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, you guys are tired? Why don't you come? Hmm. I'll give, I will give you rest. Oh man, that's just like, (laughs) that's just so beautiful. He's welcoming us into like laying down our law, our lives, laying down our works and saying, I just trust your work, Lord. Hmm. You know, it's just, you just get a lighter step Mm -hmm. when you realize it's not up to you. Now that, does that mean you're careless about obedience? No. In fact, you actually have to be more vigilant mm-hmm. because you have to burrow down beyond the law itself and what's really going on in the heart. And that's always the dangerous place to be. Mm-hmm. 
you know, because we can fake everybody else around, but we can't fake out the Lord. Mm. So, <laughs> so, oh man. So anyway, I would just say to a per- I'd just point him to Jesus and say, look, you're working too hard and you need a break. And Jesus is the one that'll give you the break. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, just thinking about the state of the union for three crosses and, you know, we've been behind the scenes celebrating a lot of newer believers that are adults yeah. that are coming to, to Christ and, Beautiful. you know, praise God for that. Mm. And I, I just wonder if a lot of people are coming to the end of the busyness of the East Bay, the end of mm. their, you know, climb up the ladder, whatever ladder it is, and, and finding that reality of like, I can work extremely hard and yet mm. it just, you know, What's it doing? What's it doing? And yeah. then mm. in those moments, you find the one, the law that has, the, the, the one that the law has been pointing to all along, Jesus mm. Christ. Wow. And, uh, and praise God for that. Yes. And uh, Larry, thank you so much for sitting down and having this conversation <laughs> with me about Matthew 11. I mean, Matthew 5. <laughs> <laughs> we're in 11. Yeah, we're in 11 a lot. So <laughs> maybe there's something in Matthew 11 that we need to go to. But. Uh, well, you know, I just well, yeah, go I'm, so, I'm going to ruin this end. Uh, you, go you're doing it. such a great close, but I just wanted to point out too. You know, at the very end of Matthew's gospel, what does Matthew point out? Jesus saying, "He says, go and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, guess what? I'm with you to the end of the age. So uh, what a great, you know, the whole Matthew, as you know, was like a discipleship tool Mm -hmm. for the early church uh, because there's so much teaching in it. And the Sermon on the Mount, it doesn't get any better. There's so much teaching, not not just five, but six, seven, incredible, deep, amazing kingdom teaching. And so we're we're in for the next few weeks. Wow. We're in for a ride. We're going to have some interesting conversations. So come back for those... uh spicy topics. (laughs) That's all I could say. But thank you for the bonus content, Larry. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Thanks for uh, stopping by the podcast studio. Hey, my pleasure. Always.